Selected readings tonight from Romans chapter 3. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only, or is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, uh, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Skip down to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world uh, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word for us tonight. You know, years ago, I had one of those life, really, ministry-defining conversations with someone uh, about a a question that, I'll be honest with you, at the time, I could not answer. Um, It was a really typical story because it was a student that had grown up immersed in Christian teaching, Christian stuff. He went went to a Christian school, Christian family, uh, all kinds of um, church going when he was younger. But, you know, college brought about a brand new set of friends, brand new set of temptations. And in this new context, he began to find that the behaviors that he sort of thought were beneath him when he was in high school uh, began to change. He was doing things that he knew he shouldn't be doing, uh, partying, those kind of stuff. But he was upset enough about it that he wanted to come and talk to a campus minister about it. 
And so he came to me, and I did my best. I mean, I'm fresh out of seminary at this point, right? I did my best to sort of unload on him this vast treasury of learning that I had gained from my three years in school, the very end of which he looked at me and said this. He goes, Les, I have heard that every day of my life. I've heard everything that you just said. It's all so painfully common to me. What I want to know is how do I get that information that you just said inside in other words, I know it in some intellectual capacity, but there's no sense in which I really feel like I own those truths. What I struggle with less, and here's what he said, is what is faith? What does it mean for me to believe? Look, y'all, this semester in RUF, we've been looking at the ways in which we can learn to deal with commonplace Christianity by considering its most fundamental basic tenets. And what we come tonight to is a topic which, I'll be honest with you, has haunted me ever since that young man asked me that question. Because the truth was, it was a question that I had struggled with and even continued to struggle with until he asked me. What does it mean to have faith? Better yet, how do you know if you are believing Clearly, the passage we just read places a lot of importance and emphasis on that question. How do I know if I'm believing? What does it feel like? What does faith mean? Now, look, I've been doing a little bit of a straw poll now for about 15 years or so to ask people their impressions of what they think that word means. Typically speaking, I get one of two answers when we start to talk about faith. The first one goes along the lines of kind of a, kind of a positive mental state that you, that you work yourself into, that's sort of defined by the absence of doubting. We become like little um, Natalie Wood in the first of the Miracle on 34th Street movies. You remember this scene? At the very end, Natalie Wood realizes that she's not gotten her gift, but she's supposed to believe in Santa Claus. And she's in the backseat of the car as they drive through the neighborhood, and she's saying, I believe, I believe. It's silly, but I believe. And we think that that's what defines Christianity, right? It's this feeling that I have. But you know what bothers me about that? And I've described it that way myself when I was growing up. Have you ever noticed how hard that is to pin down? What exactly are you talking about when you say that? And and, and not only that, does that mean that it's wrong for me to suddenly ask questions about Christianity? to investigate it further where I might have issues that I struggle with. For many of us, I submit to you that you have denied yourself the, the right to even dig into the questions you have about Christianity because you're terrified that it means you don't have faith. That's the first answer. The second answer I get from people are the people that look and say, well, faithless is this kind of intellectual leap into the dark, you know? Yes, they would say, I understand that the Bible is full of errors. I realize that Jesus may very well be a a myth that people have created in their minds. Uh, Maybe the Bible itself was conjured up by a bunch of medieval monks. Who knows? But you know what? That's why you got to have faith. (laughs) In other words, no matter how absurd the things that you're saying in Christianity really are, if I just believe enough, it crosses me over into that absurdity. This is what you're you know, your, your science professors pitch, pitch to you as, as religion and faith. Sure, believe if you like. In here, we're going to deal with facts. You can deal with faith. We deal with truth here. Does that make sense? You've heard this before, haven't you? Many of you have. Look, I simply want to submit to you that 
it's fine to have that opinion of what faith is on some level, but you run square into the problem of what the Bible teaches about you wanting to, to believe. In other words, when the Bible comes and presents the issue of faith in front of you, it goes out of its way to try to prove it to you. Well, why would it go to the lengths that it does to prove something to you if you're supposed to take this intellectual leap into absurdity in the process? The Bible simply doesn't possess that view of faith. They go into great detail for that. Look, the thread that stitches together chapter 3 and chapter 4 in the book of Romans is this wonderment from the apostle that God would actually allow people to be on his good side to be granted his favor through no other means than faith. Look, y'all, we've got to come to a biblical understanding of that word. What does it mean? I want to throw three contrasts at you. Three contrasts that I hope will give us some hooks upon which we can better understand what the nature of faith is. You got them listed there on your handout. The first one is faith versus boasting. Paul contrasts there in verses, chapter 3, verse 27, that our boasting is excluded by faith. So the question is, what in the world does Paul mean by boasting, right? Well, the word comes from, and I'm very grateful, this is yet another Tim Keller nugget that I got from something that he was preaching on this, uh, in a different passage on the same topic. Look, the idea of boasting, interestingly enough, comes from an ancient ritual of warfare where the armies would assemble prior to battle and the general would walk among the ranks of the soldiers and he would begin to, in the Bible's terminology, boast. And what he means by that are the things that he would say, look, how am I going to get all these men to go rushing into battle with the force that they need for many of them that will mean certain death? How am I going to do that? And he begins to, what he does, he starts to sort of pump them up, right? He looks and says, you know, tonight, you know, the crows are going to feast on the enemies of our flesh or something. In other words, that's the Bible's view of boasting. It's a way in which to get people pumped up. You know, we have a modern version of this. I love uh, on college game day when ESPN sort of sneaks their cameras into the, uh, the pregame locker room. Um, I'll be honest with you, college coaches, as talented as they are, are not speech makers typically. Um, they, they didn't pass speech when they were in college for some reason. And basically what they do is they load up, you know, in the locker room with these guys, this string of things that are so painfully cliché. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, all right, kids, you know, uh, man, we're going to go out there and give 110%. Uh, you know, leave it all on the field tonight. There, there is no I in team or those kinds of things. Um, what's he doing? In the Bible's terminology, he's boasting. He's trying to find something for those people to grab hold of and to say, that's something for me to fight for. Does that make sense? Okay, so when the Bible comes along and talks about our boasting, it actually says that there's a human innate need for us to boast. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 through 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in, the, in this, that he understands and knows me. What I find interesting about that verse is, did you notice that there was not an option to not boast? In other words, the writer is suggesting to us that there's a basic human need in the soul of mankind to get pumped up about something, to give you a reason to get up out of bed in the morning, 
That, the Bible says, is your boast. You know, it's, it's fun for me to be sort of in fraternity houses and listen to the sort of fraternity banter among the guys. And gentlemen, it, it, it is ceaselessly entertaining for me to hear you talk about your high school football careers. You know who you are. The ladies just laughed at you just now. It's interesting that we go back and we revisit those moments. I can laugh at it because I had no such moments in my high school <laughs> football career. I'm not going to visit that at all. But it's funny. Do you remember the accolades that you got? Do you still have the newspaper clippings from Saturday morning after your game on Friday night? What was that? That's our boast. Those are the things we look at and say, someone praised me for that. Now, ladies, don't get too terribly critical, you know. How many times have you looked in your, in your mirror, you know, and said to the mirror, okay, I may not have those, that girl's skinny little hips, but you know what? My last boyfriend told me that I had pretty eyes. That I have beautiful eyes. How can I accentuate the eyes, right? More eyeshadow. More eyeliner. What do you wear? Eyeshadow, eyeliner? I don't know. Look, I would, I would simply submit to you that boasting occupies the majority of your day. You're constantly visiting in your mind, in your heart, that place that brings you comfort. The Bible says that's your boast. This is a ubiquitous activity that we have. But here's what God says. God says, I don't want my people to live that way. Because faith excludes boasting. Why? Because boasting is always going to cause you to look down on others. Always. Look, those high school football games, gentlemen, they let you in. There was a passage that you passed through into a certain level of social acceptability, or maybe even psychological acceptability for yourself, that basically allowed you to look down on the people in the band. Right? And now band people don't get too cocky. You did the exact same thing to the athletes, right? The bottom line, though, is boasting always leads to condescension. And condescension will always create oppression and suffering. And so God said, my people will not be about that. Instead, what I want you to do is to live by faith. So what faith is, therefore, is the determination that I say that I'm not going to live my life on the basis of the accolades that I get from either myself or other human beings. The person who's believing has learned to live their life <coughs> on the basis of God's accolades. Now, this is really funny. A lot of people, it's really funny. There are a lot of faces that just kind of went, what? I, I want to suggest to you, and I try to suggest this to you almost every week, that it is foreign to very many of you to think about God's dealing with your life as being something of him pouring accolades on you. Look, I would even submit that for most of the Christians in this room, if we're given to a moment of honesty, we have a deep suspicion on the inside of our hearts that when we bow our heads to pray, the God that we meet at that moment, however you will describe him, is simply kind of tolerating us. We are, as it were, a bit of a bother to him. But see, the Bible's picture of what happens in the doctrine of justification by faith, like we talked about last week, is not that God comes in and creates for you, like R.C. Sproul says, some fragile truce, as if the, the, the relationship between the two of us is some temporary ceasefire until you mess up again. No, the Bible says in places like Psalm 87 that glorious things are said of you, O city of God. 
In other words, God is up in heaven. Let me tell you a story. This is one of those that may cheese you out, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, a good friend of mine um, who is actually in Nashville making music these days. I really like his music, as a matter of fact. We had breakfast one time at the Bottle Tree a couple of years ago. And um, I was late. He was early. And when I walked in, he had this really weird look on his face. And I said, what's wrong with you? He goes, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. It's the weirdest thing. He goes, I was sitting here and you were late. And so I thought I had a little bit of time to read my Bible. So I opened up my Bible and I was reading through some stuff that I just kind of wanted to look through. And he said, all of a sudden, this elderly man walked up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder and looked down. He didn't introduce himself, didn't ask me who I was, but he looked down at me and says, do you know that God has a picture of you in his wallet? He walks around heaven showing you off to the angels and off he walks. Now, I know for most of us, strange elderly men walking to us in the bottle tree is a bit of a disturbing experience, I'm sure. But the funny thing is, the story may be cheesy, but the sentiment is not. <laughs> is there room in your understanding of God for a God who actually heaps accolades on you to the point where you would be tempted to boast in him? Let the man who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. That, my friends, is the essence of Christianity. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible that we shall please God. It seems impossible. It's a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. The means, it means good report with God, acceptance response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Faith is different from boasting. But secondly, we find that faith is different from working. Look at verse chapter 4, verse 5. This is a giant statement explaining faith. He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay? The opposite of working is believing. You'll know faith is happening when you stop working. Got it? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what does that mean, working? Well, look, let's ask that question. What does it mean? Well, one thing that it cannot mean is that the believing person never does anything at all. Like, like faith is um, some form of volitional paralysis where, okay, don't make any choices because I'm not working. I'm believing, right? But that would actually go against Paul's entire reason for writing the entire book. Paul has already looked and said in chapter 1 that I'm writing this so that I can establish the obedience of faith. Remember that? The obedience of faith. It must mean, therefore, not that they stop working uh, uh, at all, but what it means is if the person has stopped looking to their working as being a way to be saved. What Paul is saying is basically is that people who are proud of their works because they think that this is going to be what commends me to God are the ones that God says that, that, that you don't have faith. Your working can't produce that. Look, this is a huge point that, quite honestly, is probably nowhere near as obvious as you might think that it is. Because like we said last week, and, and it was funny, there were enough people that asked about it, actually it was two weeks ago, that, that I want to dwell on it again. Look, most people, when they come to a spiritual turning point in life, and for some of you that's been this semester, you've come and talked to me about it. 
But for most of us, when we come to a spiritual turning point, we start to get very preoccupied with our sins. But see, what Paul is telling us to do is instead start thinking instead about your good deeds. Start looking at the things that validate you. Start looking at the things that you think make you feel worthwhile. Because those, he says, are the things that are keeping you from believing. In other words, you've put your faith in them and not in God. So Paul is saying faith is not so much something that necessarily has to be conjured up in you. Mm, believe, believe, believe. You know, or Natalie Wood, I believe, I believe. It's silly, but I believe. That's not what we work ourselves up into this feeling state for. What Paul says is right now, every one of you has what we might call a little F faith. Oh, you're believing in something right now. What is it? And becoming a Christian means that I transfer my trust off of those things and onto Jesus' finished work on the cross. Look, y'all, Paul is not saying that Abraham believed in God. What it says is that he believed God when God made promises. In other words, faith is not like faith in general. I think it was Eisenhower. President Eisenhower was the one that said, America is founded upon a deeply held faith. And I don't really care which one it is. No, 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 no. That's not Christianity. You see, those people might believe the Bible is God's word. They might even show reverence for God. Yet all the while, when you're seeking to be your own savior and your own justifier by trusting in your religious works, you're denying faith. Your moral attitudes, your beauty works, your intellect, your sort of... um, person, people's skills, you're savvy with crowds, maybe the stellar career that you have. All of those things are competing. And you begin to realize a very sobering thought, that it's entirely possible for people to be incredibly involved in religious things and yet never have discovered faith. Because all the while they're trusting in the things that they're doing in order to commend themselves to God. (laughs) You've gotten real busy, but you haven't become a Christian yet. Look, y'all. For a lot of people, and I'll be honest with you, I think this was where I had a big turnaround. When someone, I was was actually reading a book, one of my favorite books, looked at me and said, Les, your problem is, is your faith is not in Jesus. Your faith is in your faith. (laughs) Les, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. When I was in seventh grade, I went on a youth retreat. There was a very dynamic youth communicator who said a lot of things, and they asked me at the end if I wanted to be a Christian, and I said yes, and I prayed the prayer, and I'm a Christian. Now look, I'm not denying that that's a terrible way to describe one's experience of dealing with the truth. But what happened over the years is I began to struggle with what it was that made me a Christian. Because my faith, I realized, was in my faith. I believed in my believing. And you know what? I had zero peace. I also had zero holiness, by the way. We're going to come to that in a couple weeks. As the weeks go on after spring break, we're going to talk about how this very same idea is the only thing that makes you holy. Look, y'all, inevitably, if if your faith is in your faith, it's going to lead you to insecurity, to anxiety, to a lack of assurance of salvation, to spiritual pride, to be really touchy about criticism, or being devastated when you fail spiritually. Look, y'all, faith is not working. (laughs) It's not trusting in your works. Thirdly and finally, We see faith versus doubting. Faith versus doubting. Look, chapter 4 is preoccupied with Paul trying to convince his Jewish readers 
that if Abraham's path to being on God's good side was through faith, then the same ought to be true for us. In other words, let me see if I can ask it this way. How is it possible to believe without suddenly becoming proud of your believing? You ever thought about this? We do the same thing with humility. It's like the Bible tells you to be humble, and you're like, you're so right. Y'all, I'm really trying to be humble. I'm so humble right now. And you suddenly realize that you're kind of proud of yourself for being humble. Well, how do you have faith in something without actually suddenly becoming proud of the fact that you have faith? It's a good question. And I think chapter 4 gives us two insights to answer that. And I'll close with this. First answer is, is that it has to be of grace. This is such a big deal. (laughs) I have a feeling this is going to explain a lot to a lot of people. Look, in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, This is why it, salvation, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. In order that it may be of grace. Look, the only way not to be proud of your believing, the only way not to be proud of the fact that you made a faith transfer or that you actually stopped boasting and started leaning on Christ, the only way to do that is to realize that every bit of it was by grace. Look, if your salvation in the end had something to do with you, then you would have something to be proud of. If you're proud of yourself, then you're going to look down on others, and you're going to be miserable and insecure yourself. Look, the only way that faith heals you and the world around you is if you realize that your faith was given to you. It's a great question. If you consider yourself a Christian tonight, why are you a Christian? Is it because you believed? In some senses, that's true. Where did you get your believing? What Paul is saying is, is we don't boast. You want to know why? So that it can be of grace. Even your believing is a gift from God. Even that is a gift from God that he grants to people. Look, y'all, it's got to be, first of all, of grace completely. But secondly, and I'll finish with this. These verses, I think, give us a whole lot of insight into the means by which God gives us faith. Because he talks about old Abraham. Old, 100 years old. And God has already promised a guy that he's going to have a kid. Sarah's 80. And no, this is not back in olden times where the ages were different. It's just as peculiar for an 80-year-old to get pregnant then as it was now. Trust me, right? How, though, does God go and reason with Abraham? Look, I want to submit to you that he goes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, listen to me. (laughs) I need you to trust me. And in order to do that, you need to think for a second about all the other things that you could put your trust in. In other words, Abraham, you can't know anything without trusting something in order to know it. Look, if you say that you know something, it means that you're trusting your mind. It means you're trusting your eyes. You're trusting your logic. Maybe you're trusting your, your friend's opinions. Maybe you're trusting the, uh, uh, the political opinion polls. Uh, maybe you trust the experts. Who, who cares? But there is no way to know anything without trusting something else in order to really know it. Some authority in life. And so God looks at, at Abraham and says, Abraham, <laughs> where else would you go? How else would you ever find this? Verse 17 says, The God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He says, look, do you not understand, Abraham, that I am so much more reliable than anything else that you can build your life on? 
And right now you're building your house on something that is pure sand. And you can feel the waves of instability, can't you? In your conscience, that you look up night after night, maybe morning after morning, and look back and think to yourself, is this what I wanted to become? Is this what I wanted to build my life on? That's God looking in and saying, look at all these other things you could trust in. Is that worth it? I'm the only sure place that you can go. And you want to know why? Because I'm the guy who brings something out of nothing. (laughs) I'm the guy who makes sure that your wife is 80 years old before she gets pregnant. That's the guy I am, Abraham. And you know what that means? It's the most beautiful encouragement to us here tonight. Because for a lot of you, you're looking and kind of going, ah, okay, 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 faith, boasting, right, 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 faith, working, faith, doubting. What does that mean? Look, trust this God who brings something out of nothing. You're not sure whether you have something in your heart right now. I'm telling you, trust this God who brings something out of nothing because even he can produce faith where there's none. Let me ask you a question. Are you curious? (laughs) Is there a little something in you that might think to yourself, the accolades of God, that God would actually rejoice over me with singing, like it says in Zephaniah 3.17. Wow. I wonder if that could be true. Hey, you know what you're doing? (laughs) You're starting to believe. You're starting to trust. You're starting to look and say, boy, his opinion is much better than anybody else's. There's stability here. There's insecurity here. Look, y'all, that's God's promise that he holds out to us. And guess what? It's by faith. Can you believe it? (laughs) It's not through boasting. It's not through working. It's not by purging doubt. It's through looking to him. What are you looking at tonight? Who are you trusting? Is it stable for you? God holds out a promise to you. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the only way for us to believe then is if you bring us to believing. And the way you bring us to believing is by showing us yourself. We want to see you. We want to read about you. We want to go back to the dorms tonight and talk to our roommates about you. We want to pray to you. We want in a couple moments to sing to you. Lord Jesus, we need to see you through all those means. For some people, they're... They're feeling a bit panicked because they're realizing that their faith all this time has been, has been in their faith. Lord Jesus, would you come and show yourself to them as a, gracious, as a gracious path to acceptance. That you don't ask anybody to, to jump through hoops. Without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy, the song says. And so Lord, as poor as we are, we come to you as best as we know how. Asking for you to work faith into our hearts. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.